The reading this morning comes from Romans chapter 4. What then shall we say that Abraham, our forefather according to the flesh, discovered in this matter? If, in fact, Abraham was justified by works, he had something to boast about, but not before God. What does the scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness. Now to the one who works, wages are not credited as a gift, but as an obligation. However, to the one who does not work, but trusts God who justifies the ungodly, their faith is credited as righteousness. David says the same thing when he speaks of the blessedness of the one to whom God credits righteousness apart from works. Blessed are those whose transgressions are forgiven, whose sins are covered. Blessed is the one whose sin the Lord will never count against him. Is this blessedness only for the circumcised or also for the uncircumcised? We have been saying that Abraham's faith was credited to him as righteousness. Under what circumstances was it credited? Was it after he was circumcised or before? It was not after, but before. And he received circumcision as a sign, a seal of the righteousness that he had by faith while he was still uncircumcised. So then, he is the father of all who believe but have not been circumcised in order that righteousness might be credited to them. And he is then also the father of the circumcised who not only are circumcised but also follow in the footsteps of the faith that our father Abraham had before he was circumcised. It was not through the law that Abraham and his offspring received the promise that he would be heir of the world, but through the righteousness that comes by faith. For if those who depend on the law are heirs, faith means nothing, and the promise is worthless, because the law brings wrath. And where there is no law, there is no transgression. Therefore, the promise comes by faith, so that it may be by grace and may be guaranteed to all Abraham's offspring, not only to those who are of the law, but also to those who have the faith of Abraham. He is the father of us all. As it is written, I have made you a father of many nations. He is our father in the sight of God, in whom he believed, the God who gives life to the dead and calls into being things that were not. Against all hope, Abraham, in hope, believed and so became the father of many nations. Just as it had been said to him, so shall your offspring be. Without weakening in his faith, he faced the fact that his body was as good as dead, since he was about a hundred years old, and that Sarah's womb was also dead. Yet he did not waver through unbelief regarding the promise of God, but was strengthened in his faith and gave glory to God being fully persuaded that God had power to do what he had promised. 
This is why it was credited to him as righteousness. The words it was credited to him were written not for him alone, but also for us, to whom God will credit righteousness. For us who believe in him, who raised Jesus our Lord from the dead. He was delivered over to death for our sins and was raised to life for our justification. Well, good morning, everyone. As Beck said, my name is Flick, if I don't know you. And um, I have the privilege of preaching this morning on our kind of final Romans sermon for a while. We'll be coming back to Romans uh, at another point, but this is the last one uh, for the time being. And I thought I'd find out um, whether amongst us there is anyone here who likes travelling. Do we have any other travellers? Hands up. Likes travelling? Yeah. Oh, yeah, good. There's a few of you. Right. Uh, so over summer, I, did, I went travelling. I had the uh, good opportunity to be able to go to Turkey and Europe. And I decided, I'm not sure what your style of travelling is, but I decided that I would go backpacking um, rather than using a wheelie suitcase. And of course, the problem with backpacking is that you're committing to taking whatever you deem necessary for that holiday on your back, uh, obviously. And so for me, that meant that I had to carry a laptop and a charger and some study books because I was doing some studies in Turkey. And then I also took some snow gear because I was going to go uh, snowboarding in Bulgaria. And then I took some toiletries, which I think the Europeans are probably thankful for. And I took an extra pair of boots because it was winter in Europe and I thought if one got wet, I didn't want to have cold feet the whole time. And again, Europe in winter, I chucked in a raincoat because you figure it's going to get wet. And I took a few woolen jumpers and a whole lot of layers that I thought I'd need to prevent myself from getting cold. And so all of a sudden, I realised that my backpack was full and also really heavy. And when that backpack was sitting on the hostel floor, that was fine. And even at the beginning of my transit from one place to the next, the weight was okay. But once I'd put that pack on my back and I'd walked out of the hostel to the metro station and then from the metro station to the connecting bus and then from the connecting bus to the right check-in desk, which obviously can take a while to find, and then from the luggage carousel to the next transport to the next hostel, that pack was really heavy. And so it was the best feeling ever to get to the next destination, to find my room and to be able to dump that pack on the floor. Now, can you imagine that feeling, that release from the weight? the real freedom that you get. What I want you to do, if you've been here over the last few weeks, is to think about Romans as we've heard it. If Romans is like our backpack, then what Paul has put into that uh, is some pretty heavy stuff. So first, Paul has said that indulging our sinful desires and making idols of people and things makes us forget who God is and keeps forcing us further and further away from his life-giving, gift-giving relationship that we need to have with him. Then Paul has said that all of us are facing God's righteous, so justified anger and judgment. And it doesn't matter um, what we're doing, we've all in some way failed to acknowledge and worship God properly and all of us have failed to live blameless lives. And we've also been told that no one is good enough based on their own efforts to be able to pass the judgment of God that is coming. So we can't, on our own efforts, avoid the punishment that God has in store. And it doesn't matter how well we follow God's instructions, which we can find in the Bible, we can never follow them well enough to be considered blameless in God's sight. 
And so that means that we're facing judgment, punishment, and also missing out on the inheritance that God has promised, which is to have a good relationship with him and to be able to live eternally in his perfect, restored creation. So this is what we've been hearing in Romans, and this is heavy stuff. And if you were feeling the weight of that as we heard it, then you were not alone. I think a lot of people heard those things and were feeling how heavy that truth is. But last week, we arrived at the hostel. So what Beck told us last week was that we had got to the place where there was a way to take off that great weight. God has given us a way to be righteous, a way to make us blameless in his sight. And that way is through faith in Jesus Christ. Ladies and gentlemen, we've reached the hostel, we've found our room, and we can dump that weight on the floor. This is the gospel. This is the good news of Christianity, that all people have a way of being made right with God, and that is through faith in Jesus Christ. But I'm not sure about you, but I found that sometimes when I get to my destination and offload, it still takes me a while to kind of feel the freedom of that new state, to actually recognise what it is that I can now do without all of that weight attached to me. And I think, actually, from our passage today, that this is what Romans 4 is doing. So in chapter 3, we've heard that Paul has been reminding the Jewish and Gentile Christians in Rome about what the gospel is, the, the fact that they have faith in Jesus Christ and that that has given them freedom. But even though we can say we have faith and are righteous, trust God and you are saved... It doesn't mean, I think, that we automatically understand the implications for our life. And I reckon at least part of the reason that Paul wrote the letter of Romans was because he wasn't sure that the Christians in Rome had actually really understood what it meant for them to have faith. All the stuff that we hear about circumcision and uncircumcision isn't um, so much about the actual issue of circumcision, but more the question... Can we be sure that faith alone is enough to save us? Or do we have to do something more? Do we have to keep the law and be circumcised in order for God to find us righteous and therefore to be able to receive the promised inheritance? And so that is the question that I want to try and answer for us today as well, because at the end of that passage um, that we've read today, it says that these words are not just written for Abraham and they're not just written for the Christians in Rome, but for all who believe in Jesus. So if you are a believer in Jesus, then this is a truth for us as well. So the question is, can we be sure that faith alone is enough to save us, enough to make us righteous, blameless before God, so that we can therefore be saved and have the promises? And I'm going to break it down um, sort of in three sections. So first, I want to look at some of the doubts that we might have about how it is that faith enough can be Faith alone can be enough to save us, and we'll um, have a look at some of the possible kind of responses to those doubts. Then we're going to have a look at two uh, reasons that we can be sure that faith alone is enough, and then we'll look at the one important application of this. So these three reasons that we might have doubt uh, are the matter of value, the matter of pride, and the matter of justice. So Romans 3 verse 24 says that faith is given to us freely by God. And that's been repeated in our passage today. Faith isn't something that we earn or work for. It is something that is given to us as a free gift. 
But I reckon that many of us are probably a bit cynical about the idea of a free gift, anything that is advertised as free. Usually, we find that there are strings attached. You don't get something for nothing, right? And when I was at uni, I had an experience that kind of made this a truth for me. So a friend and I went to a free speed reading seminar, and on the way in, and we had to sort of give our details, which I clearly should have paid more attention to, because what I realised later was that I'd actually signed up to say that I would opt out of their free offer. And so if I didn't opt out within a certain amount of time, I'd basically agreed to signing up to their full speed reading course, which cost a few hundred dollars, or to paying a fee for reneging on that commitment. And I found that out the expensive way. And that whole experience made me quite cynical of anything that was advertised as free. And it might not be that experience, but I think a lot of us have had experiences where something sort of said to be free and then we find out that actually it's not quite what we thought it was. Some strings were attached to that promise. And I guess there is a question that we can reasonably ask. How or why is something truly valuable able to be given away for free? How is it that we can receive righteousness from God with no cost to ourselves? So we will look at an answer to that question in a minute, but it also, this question brings us to the matter of pride. So this is another point that we might have doubt in. Surely I am able to do something that contributes to my righteousness in God's eyes. I'm not that bad, am I? What about my work as a nurse? At a bare minimum, I'm sacrificing my sense of smell most days, but also probably my physical and emotional energy. Surely that counts towards my righteousness in some way. Or what about the money that I give to church and to charities? Doesn't that count for something? Or what about the advocacy that I do? Or the time that I give to have people over for meals? Or the job that I didn't take so that I would have more time with my family? or the relationship I didn't pursue because it wouldn't honour God. Doesn't that count for something? And this brings us to the matter of justice. If it is true that our efforts don't factor into our righteousness before God, how is that fair? Because I'm a pretty good person, I think. I mean, I come to church weekly, I don't get drunk... I try to shop ethically, I apologise if I've been angry at someone, I don't swear much, I've stopped looking at porn. If this gospel is true, then others who have faith in Jesus but don't seem to give or do as much as I do can still be considered right in God's eyes just as quickly as I am. And they get the full benefits of being God's children just as I do but they haven't done or given or sacrificed as much as I have. How is that fair? These are reasonable doubts to have. They are not bad questions to ask. And in fact, I think this is part of what Paul is doing in chapter 4 in Romans. I think he's trying to respond to these questions, except that it's couched in the language of the law and circumcision. It's like he's saying to the Jewish Christians in Rome who are asking that question, doesn't our obedience to the law and our circumcision count for something? Doesn't it count towards our righteousness? And his answer is no. No, the law and the circumcision that you have had do not make you righteous in God's eyes. And for us, no, my nursing, our ethical decisions do not make us righteous in God's eyes. 
But why not? I mean, when we come to church, we certainly seem to be getting told often that there are things that we have to do as Christians. So what does it mean that those things that we're doing don't make us righteous? In response to this idea of the justice of this, of this um, truth, there are things, I think lots of things that we can say, but I'm just going to kind of highlight two of them. So the first one is that God is free to give good gifts to whoever he wants, and that is not an unjust action. And um, one of the reminders we're given in the Bible is in the parable of the vineyard and the workers, which is in Matthew 20. And in that parable, um, what we see is that at the beginning of the day, workers are offered work by the owner of this vineyard, and he says, I'll give you a day's wages for the work, and they say, yep, and off they go. And then halfway through the day, he um, goes out again, the owner goes out again and invites more people to come and work for him and says, I'll give you a day's wages for the work that you do. And so they come and work. And then at five o'clock in the afternoon, just before quitting time, he goes out again and invites more people to come and earn something. And he says, I'll give you a day's wages. They work. But when the wages are handed out, the people that were working in the morning complain about the fact that those who are working less time than them have been given the same amount. They resent the generosity of that vineyard worker. It is not an unjust action for an owner to give what he chooses to people and to give what has been agreed. And so this is one of the reasons that this idea that faith alone is enough to save anyone is a just idea. It's not based on the particular giftings of someone. It's based on what was agreed in the first place. And the second one um, idea, I guess, that we have is that uh, if we're comparing ourselves truly based on God's standard and not our own, uh, we are all sinners. And so even though we sort of think about being good on a spectrum, the truth is, actually, this is just a black and white yes or no. Either you are holy or you are not. That is how um, the matter of righteousness and salvation is, is made in God's eyes. You are sinful or you are not sinful. You are perfect or you are not perfect. And so if we're using God's sense of justice, God's sense of right and wrong, then the truth is that we either stand in one space or the other, and so we all are sinners, and therefore it isn't unjust for God to, to pass judgment based on that, that sort of measure. But our, tr our pride does make it difficult to accept this, um, to accept the idea that our efforts don't contribute anything to our righteousness. And so this is why Paul also takes the time to remind us um, in verses 14 and 15 in chapter 4, but also in the first part of Romans, that those who depend on the law uh, and are trying to be heirs to the promise by the law, um, are, it, like it's a worthless idea because the law alone brings wrath. So in other words, what he's saying is God might as well not have bothered making the promise because if he was relying on people to be able to keep the law, then nobody would succeed. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And because only that which is pure or holy can be in God's presence, ultimately, then that would put us in a position where nobody can actually end up in the place that we were created to be, like back in the relationship with God that is good and pure and holy. So our righteous actions don't make us good enough to be in God's presence. Only Jesus, who is righteous, can make us good enough. 
And so that, um, yeah, that idea that our pride actually is kind of unjustified is one that we need to hold on to when we're thinking about this idea that faith alone is enough to save us. But just because our righteous acts don't make us righteous enough in God's eyes, it doesn't mean that we should stop doing good things. So um, I think it is helpful when we're trying to think about like what we're doing, what other people are doing, what's good and what's not. We just need to remind ourselves that surely the only reason that we're doing these good things isn't to justify us in God's eyes, but because there is a flow-on effect from our good actions. They have a positive effect not only in our lives, but in the world around us. And as to the matter of the value of this free gift, I guess we also need to ask ourselves, what could we possibly give that would be enough to restore the damage or repair the damage that we have done to that relationship with God? So we were created for a relationship with God, who is loving and pure, but our our continued disobedience against him just pushes us further and further away. And we know from relationships that we have with each other that it doesn't take much to damage our relationships. And actually, once the, the words are spoken or the action is done, it is hard to undo that. It's hard to repair that completely. Even if we apologise, we know that there is still um, kind of a scar that's left in that relationship that we then have to learn to live around. And so if we're thinking about what we can possibly give as reparation for that relationship with God and all the times that we have actually kind of um, disobeyed God or turned away from God, it becomes an impossible task to think that we could do enough to repair that relationship. Despite our best intentions, we are going to stuff up again because we are imperfect people. And even as much as we try to be better, um, we know that our offerings are never going to be perfect. And so if we can't offer reparation for our sins, somebody else needs to do it for us. And that is what Jesus has done. So these three doubts are reasonable doubts, but actually I think there are good reasons to recognise that it's okay to say that faith alone saves us. It's a great truth that we have, but it does require us um, to trust that truth. And so what Paul does in this chapter is also to give some assurance, to try and help us have confidence, have certainty that this is a true uh, statement. And so the way that he does that, well, he does it in various ways, but the two ways that I'm going to talk about are the first is through giving a human example. So this is where he's talking about Abraham, and he obviously spends a lot of time talking about Abraham. And he also sort of drops in a psalm there, which is from David. And these are two really great religious or Christian or Jewish figures um, in history. And so not only does he know that the Christians in Rome are going to respect these guys and respect Abraham and and trust um, the kind of example of Abraham, but also he's, he's giving a concrete historical example, which for us is really helpful. He knew that those Christians would know who he was talking about, but it also means that when we look at this, we can go, well, we trust the authority of the Bible, we trust that it is true, and so if this thing happened, then that's something that I can have confidence in. And as we we read uh, Genesis 12 earlier, um, but also that sort of story expands over more chapters, and uh, it is in Genesis 15, verse 6, that Abraham is actually said, it is credited to him as righteousness, his faith is credited to him. So he is sort of the first example, I guess, we have of God saying, you are righteous. And so that's a really good place for Paul to start in trying to help assure people that faith is enough to save you. So that promise, as we heard, is that Abraham is going to be the father of 
many nations and that his descendants will be as numerous as the stars in the night sky. But as we were reminded in verse 19, Abraham is about 100 years old and Sarah's womb is dead. So this is basically a promise like expecting our grandparents to start a family, which is both an absurd idea and kind of a gross idea and definitely seems impossible, right? Like for a 100-year-old man and a postmenopausal woman to be having children is just ludicrous. And yet this is the promise that Abraham has faith in. This is something that Abraham says, yep, God said it, and so I'll believe it. And in verses 19 and 20, it says that his faith didn't waver. He hoped against hope, so he recognised that it seemed like a crazy idea, and he still put his hope in this promise. His faith grew strong, and he was fully convinced about this, that God was able to do what he had promised he would do. And so we can look at Abraham's faith and be impressed by it, but we do have to remember that even with Abraham, it's not a matter of him having a righteous act of faith. It's actually about him being given a gift of faith. And so this example that Paul is using is not to say you should work hard enough to have faith like Abraham. He's actually saying this person that you revere as like the father of your, your whole faith also was not like faithful and righteous because of his circumcision or the law that came like in response to his faith but actually he was also justified by faith alone so paul is trying to kind of help them see that actually this is um, not uh, about following the letter of the law but actually trusting god And I'm going to come back to signs of faith in a little bit. But the second point of assurance that Paul is giving, so saying you can be certain about this idea because of Abraham, but then the other point of assurance he gives is actually by saying this is who God is. So he holds up God's character for us to look at. So when we talk about having faith in God, it's not this abstract concept, but it's actually saying we trust a particular person. And Paul is reminding us that the God that we are invited to trust is the powerful creator God. Verse 17 says that God, the God that Abraham believed in, gives life to the dead and calls into being things that are not. In other words, God can create something from nothing. And so that's what we see in that story of Abraham and Sarah, that God in his timing brought life out of Sarah's dead womb and then brought into existence from Abraham and Sarah these new people and these new um, many nations. So we look at Abraham's faith as an example for us, but more specifically, Paul says, we also look to Jesus Christ, who God also raised from the dead and through whom God brought into existence a new people, and that is uh, the church, the body of Christ. And so these two ideas are given to assure us that it is possible to believe that faith alone is enough to make us righteous before God. We look at this God who has been shown both in history, in the Bible, and also in nature around us to be a God who is powerful and able to work in unexpected and amazing ways. And so the application that we come to, the application that matters, is basically that we trust 
this idea that faith alone is enough to save us, enough to make us righteous in God's eyes. And if you're a Christian, then you have already done this. You have faith and you are saved. And that is a wonderful truth and one that I think we all know but sometimes have to remind ourselves of. If you have faith, you are saved. But what does this freedom look like? What does it actually look like to have faith in God, to trust God, to have confidence that faith has saved us? I think um, the best way of trying to convey this idea is through using some different illustrations. Um, Because the thing is, I don't want you to walk away thinking that you have to do more. That is something that we sometimes feel leaving church. And I don't want you to think you have to do more because the truth is that you are free. Your faith has saved you. And so you should feel joy. This is a joyful truth. Anyone who believes the gospel, that Jesus, who was God in the flesh, came and took on himself all of God's wrath, all of God's judgment, all of our punishment that we did deserve, that Jesus took it on himself so that we would actually be found blameless in God's sight. If that is the truth that you believe, then you have faith and you are saved. And your good actions reflect that truth. This is like the fruit on a fruit tree. If that tree has no fruit on it, it is still a fruit tree. And if you are not doing good works but have faith in Jesus Christ, you are still righteous in God's eyes and are saved. But the fruit is the proof. It helps to show what this truth is in your life. So when others look at you, can they see the way that faith is impacting your life, the way that it is showing what you truly understand to be true? Because it should make a difference. If we are convinced of something, then that conviction will play out in our life. So I could say that I have faith in your driving skills, but if I backseat drive the whole time that you're in the car, I'm not actually showing that I have faith in your ability to drive well. Or I might say that I have faith in a particular footy team to win the grand final, but if I tip against that footy team, I'm not showing that I have faith in them to win. Or I could say that I have confidence in this bungee cord to hold my weight, but if I never use that bungee cord to jump, I'm not showing that I have faith in that cord. And the thing is, the Bible indicates that there are different measures of faith. So we hear Jesus talking about faith as small as a mustard seed, or he says to his own disciples, you have little faith. So it is true that there are different measures of faith, and I think it is equally true that it doesn't matter how much faith you have in Jesus. Any amount of faith in Jesus means that you are righteous, saved. That is a great promise, a great truth, and one that you should hold really strongly in your heart. But faith gives us freedom. If I successfully jump using that bungee cord, then my confidence in that cord is going to increase. If I get in the car with you, then I'm giving my faith in your driving ability an opportunity to grow. And our faith in Christ is no different. If we have faith that God is powerful and present and has our best interests at heart, and not just our best interests, but the interests of the whole world then that truth, that belief that we have, that faith that we have, will be reflected in the decisions we make and in the choices um, that are unfolding, the sacrifices that we're making. 
So we will give generously because we believe that God will provide for us. Uh, It will be reflected in the way that we speak about God. We will be ready to give an account for the hope that we have in Jesus. And our faith will be seen in the way that we love people around us. We won't go around pretending that we're better than people because the truth is we know we're not. We believe, we have faith that what has saved us is not our own good actions, but Jesus Christ. And we have faith that any life can be transformed by Jesus Christ. And so that should be reflected in the way that we love other people. And um, as Beck said before, Paul goes on after chapter 4 to show us what the fruit of faith looks like. And the first thing he says is that we have peace with God. So as I finish, I hope that you feel the freedom of this truth. I hope that you know the peace that you have with God. But if you don't and you want this, then I'm going to pray for us and I invite you as I pray, to ask God or ask Jesus to be your righteousness. So let's pray. Powerful creator God, we thank you for your love for us. We know that we live in ways that ignore you and reject your good plan, and we are sorry for the way this damages our relationship with you, our relationship with others, and our relationship with the world you have created. Thank you for sending Jesus Christ to take our judgment and punishment on himself. And thank you that faith alone in Jesus is enough to save us. Help our lives to reflect the confidence we have in you. Help us to put our faith to the test and to live in a way that honours you and loves others. We ask these things by your Holy Spirit and in the name of our Saviour, Jesus Christ. Amen.